In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of uh, Syria, and all went to be registered, each to their own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was one of the he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to a firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to the Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And when they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, Yes, they find him lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and had seen as it had been told them. You know, for a long time, when I, growing up, I actually didn't grow up Christian. I, I started going to church when I was about second or third grade, but when I was really young, I actually wasn't a Christian for quite a long time. And I didn't know much about Christmas. The one thing I did know about growing up was about Santa Claus. <laughs> Right? How many of you guys were raised believing in Santa Claus? All right. Okay. And all you guys kind of ended up okay. <laughs> Man, that okay. You believe this magical, fat, jolly white guy who is like, you know, <laughs> robed in red and climbs down your chimney. And for some reason, that was normal to think that way. Um, but let me tell you, growing up, I like legit believed in Santa Claus. So I was born and raised in Chile, right? That's Southern Hemisphere. That means that Christmas falls in the summer. Plus, in Chile, where I was raised, it was kind of like desert kind of place. So it's similar to like California in some ways, uh, the, the city where I was raised in. And so you don't have any chimneys, right? 
You don't need a chimney. You're in the desert. Who needs a chimney in the desert? And so I like, I would look at my parents in the eye and I'd be like, if we don't have a chimney, how is Santa going to get in? Like, I was just so dead serious about this. How is he going to give me my presents if we don't have a chimney? (laughs) And my parents, obviously, you know, they would try to reassure me. They're like, we'll leave the door, you know, unlocked just to make sure that Santa can get in and don't worry about it. And I love that, you know, this was part of the magic of this season. I grew up legit believing in Santa Claus. And, you know, we would do the whole thing where we would... You know, all, I have two brothers. All three of us would fall asleep around the Christmas tree because we thought we were going to catch Santa this year. You know, like this year, none of us go to sleep. We're going to wait. We're going to stay awake until, you know, however it takes until we're going to catch Santa in the act this year. And we were just so serious about this. And, you know... There's a lot of sweetness around this time of year. Many of you might have experienced this. Uh, My parents, you know, it was was a very, um, like, typical immigrant story where you move to a new country, and you're dirt poor when you get there. You know, you kind of work your way up, but when you first get there, you're dirt poor. You don't have a lot of money for gifts. You don't have a lot of money for, like, decorations and things. But I remember my mom, like, as early as she could, the one purchase that she made was a Christmas tree. When I look back on pictures, it was like ratty. It was kind of falling apart. You know, it was like very cheap and plasticky and all of that. But it was like the most magical thing ever for us. And it made the season so special. Now, as I grew up, I stopped believing in Santa, of course, I hope. Right? I stopped believing in Santa. But this feeling of this time of year being a magical time in the year where you give and you pause, and you reflect, and you give thanks, and you put down a year's labor down, and you celebrate, where you sing Christmas carols that sometimes you have no idea what they're talking about, but it's like this really nostalgic feeling, right? You sing Christmas carols, and you drink hot chocolate, even though in Chile it was like 32 degrees Celsius. It's like boiling hot, and we're like, oh, this is so cozy and nice, because like we want to experience all of that, right? Uh, You know, you exchange gifts and you verbalize your appreciation for someone. Uh, You know, that feeling persisted over time, even though, you know, things have changed, obviously. And I know that over the years, this holiday can become very, like, overly commercialized and, like, very hyper-consumeristic. But, you know, those are definitely things that we should worry about. But if there's one thing that I would like to keep alive in my heart is that childlike wonder is that warmth as i revisit this part of history you know uh, it, we are in a world that is so quickly changing and we're always like looking for the new and the shiny and the fast and the entertaining and what's like flashy and glamorous and we're always looking for the new and there's quite a comfort sometimes in revisiting this old story that we're so familiar with and finding comfort there I find that every year, you know, my prayer is that, God, would you give me a childlike heart again? Because I know that over the year, I can get very consumed and absorbed and busy and look whatever. But at the end of the year, I don't want to end the year that way. I want my heart to remain soft, 
to this part of history, to this part of the Bible, to this part of what you have done for me. I don't ever want that to be so routine. And so like, yeah, yeah, I've heard this story so many times. Yeah, yeah, I know all these songs. Yeah, yeah, we did this last year. I never want to become so jaded and so overly familiar to this that I'm incapable of childlike wonder and awe. You know, there's a great quote by Charles Dickens, and it says, It is good to be children sometimes, and never better than Christmas, when its mighty founder was a child himself. Isn't that a beautiful quote? Jesus Christ, the founder of the world, the one who spoke creation into being, he himself was a child, and so can we during Christmas time. This narrative surrounding the birth of Jesus and the reason we celebrate Christmas season is not, you know, just a statement. It's not just a fact. It's not just a precept or, you know, a data point in the narrative, or it's not just a part of a chronology. It is an invitation for all of us as believers to hear once again, to see once again for ourselves, and to praise God once again. So as, you know, as we work through the passage today that Eugene so beautifully read for us, I want us to have that posture of God, yes, I've heard the story. Yes, I've read this section in the Bible so many times. Yes, I know exactly what's going to happen next. But would you give me a renewed heart? Would you give me new eyes to see you? Would my heart be overflowing with new praise for you today? And so Christmas, the first thing... You know, that this birth narrative of Jesus Christ invites us into, it is an invitation for us to hear the good news afresh. To hear the good, yet, once, sometimes we get so used to the good news that it becomes old news. We need for it to be good news once again. You know, this is what Luke 2 says, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy For all the people. It's not going to cause, yeah, yeah, like I've heard this before to all people. It's going to cause great joy. This good news is supposed to inspire great joy for all the people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This is the good news that we hear in Luke 2. First of all, that it's today, not in some far off time, not in some prophesied future. It is today in the town of David. It's like somebody saying, Hey, today at two o'clock in the Taiso in the corner. You know what I mean? It's like somewhere very local, very recognizable, somewhere that you, you automatically know exactly where it is. And so it's today in the town of David and not some, whoa, outknown, uh, unknown, far off land. It is in the town of David. Well, someone's got a lot of Christmas cheer going on. I, I kind of like that. <laughs> um, yes, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you to you not to any kind of people to you a savior has been born he is the messiah so the fulfillment 
of every prophecy, the answer to every question, the culmination of all these sacred scriptures. He is the Messiah. And in case you still have a question in mind, he is the Lord, the great I am, the uncreated one, the, the, heaven, the God of heaven and earth, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lord. Now, for, for us who have grown up, you know, as I'm assuming most of us here are Gentile Christians. We don't really speak that way, but we're all Gentile believers, right? We're not, we don't have Jewish background or Jewish origin. To us, this seems like good news, but, you know, yeah, it's good, but we weren't really waiting for it. We weren't really looking for it. And it's so amazing that, Eugene, in your prayer, you talked about this idea of, like, we don't really understand what it means, like, to wait for Jesus. Uh, I hope you can follow me with this. You know, a few years ago, when I went to Israel for first time, the, one of the first places that I went to was the Wailing Wall. It's also called the Western Wall. It is, you know, a part in where the, the, the temple once was, once stood. It's a remaining part that is accessible to Jews even today to go lay hands and pray. And it is, when you go there, there's nothing really special about this. There's a ton of buildings like that. There's a ton of walls like that. It doesn't look like anything special. And yet this is such a sacred place for the Jewish faith. They lay hands and they pray for the coming of their Messiah. Now, before I went there, I thought that I would see just very religious people kind of just, you know, reciting things that they've memorized. But I was, frankly, very surprised to see the passion and the zeal with which they were praying. Some people were like wailing, like literally weeping as they lay hands on the wall, crying out for their Messiah, for the return of glory, for the return of a God who will dwell with us once again. And I remember being just so like overcome with this feeling of, man, I don't understand longing at all. I don't understand what it feels like to cry out for generation after generation for the coming of rescue, for the coming of redemption, for the coming of salvation. I don't even understand that. But as I watch these Jewish believers lay hands on this wall and cry and pray and wail, I, I feel like for the first time I, begin, I began to understand how an entire people group is yearning and longing to be reconciled with God once again. And I remember sitting back and feeling this, uh, you know, it's the sense of awe and the sense of like, I can't imagine that they've kept this going from generation to generation, this, this flame of longing for God for generations. And then at the same time, I was feeling this, I don't know how to explain, like this ashium, like, if only you knew that God has come for you. If only you knew that your prayers have been answered. If only you knew that there's forgiveness for your sins. That you don't have to live with that yoke of slavery on your shoulders anymore. You don't have to live with that shame anymore. God himself has come. He has answered your prayers. And he has freed you from the yoke of slavery and called you sons and daughters. He has reconciled you to you again. You don't have to live with that guilt anymore. You don't have to do all these rituals in order to be accepted anymore. Don't you know that God has come for you? And I remember feeling so overcome with this feeling. Man, if only you knew 
that the God that you're so familiar with, all these scriptures that you've memorized, all these things that you've learned from, from when you were a child, that all these things God has accomplished and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you know how loved you are? Do you know that your Savior has come for you? And I remember feeling this like, man, if only you knew. This is something that I as a Christian take so for granted. I'm like, yeah, Jesus came. Yeah, he died for me. Yes, I'm going to rise up in the resurrection. You know, like I take these things so for granted. But for an entire people group, it's still a yearning and a longing far off in the distance. This is, this for me, this experience of seeing people cry out to God in this way was just so transformative. Because I don't know if I would have had that kind of grit. I don't know if I could take this on for generation to generation. But I do know that God is going to answer their prayer. God has answered their prayer through Jesus' first coming. And he'll fulfill every other promise, every other scripture through his second coming as well. I can't imagine... You know, all the rituals that they do, every time they do ceremonial washing, every time they were to, you know, slice open an animal for sacrifice, every time they were to give their money towards the temple, every time, every ritual, every holiday, every tradition, pointing over and over and over to their need for a savior. It's like they're saying, as they wash their hands, I need a savior. As they slice through an animal, I need a savior. As they give towards the temple, I need a savior. Everything that they do, crying out, I need a savior. I need a Messiah. I need forgiveness. I need cleansing. I need a new beginning. I need freedom. I need rescue. I need healing. Everything that they do is crying out for this Messiah. Now the good news that is shouted over the mountaintops through the coming of Christ is God saying, I've heard your cries. I am coming to the rescue. I will not tarry. I will not just watch you suffer. I will not just watch you perish. I will not just hand you over to hopelessness. I will not remain distant. I will not remain silent. I will fight for you. I will pursue you. I will cleanse you and forgive you and free you. I am coming to you. That is the good news that is being preached over the mountaintops. Because here's a good news for the sinner like you and I. There's forgiveness for the repentant. There's healing for the broken. There's freedom from the cap- for the captive. There's glory for the lowly and the humble. There's dignity for the downtrodden. There's release for the guilt-ridden. There's a home for the orphaned. There's a family for the abandoned. Now, all of us can resonate with this feeling here and there in our lives. You know when you've done something wrong and you feel this guilt weighing down? You know, like you've wronged somebody or, you, or whatever the case may be. There's something that you're feeling very guilty of. Imagine you have to live your entire life with that weighing you down, not ever knowing if you'll find the forgiveness that you're looking for. Imagine you have to live an entire life not knowing if you are loved. If somebody knows your name, if somebody sees you, if somebody will provide for you, imagine you have to live an entire life in that way. This is why the good news is good news. Once we had to live with our shame, once we had to live with our guilt, that was once our destiny. 
but it is no longer our future. This one unimaginable act of divine compassion and divine condescension, God who is above, coming down here on earth and becoming a child. The word become flesh, the word that was uncreated, Genesis 1 word, coming here to earth to become flesh and dwell among us. This one divine act of compassion and condescension, it changed the narrative for us all. For God so loved the world. He so loved you and I. He so loved the broken, the downtrodden. He so loved the hopeless. He so loved the addicted. He so loved those who will keep getting things wrong and who will keep making mistakes and will keep breaking his heart. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You and I will have everlasting life. Life to the full. Life in abundance. Life to the overflow. This is the good news that is there for you and I in the coming of Jesus. The Christmas story and the narrative of Jesus' birth, it is an invitation to hear the good news afresh. I want my heart to be overflowing with praise when I think about the gospel. I want God to restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I don't want to be jaded about my salvation. I don't want to be over-familiar with my salvation. I want to see God restore this joy of my salvation. And so Christmas is the perfect opportunity for us to incline our ear, to lean in and hear the good news once again. Now, second, this Christmas narrative, it's not just an invitation to hear the good news, but it's an invitation to come and see for yourself. Now, in the Luke 2 account, it's pretty amazing that as this miracle of God in the flesh is happening in Bethlehem, these angels appear to these random shepherds who are out in the fields minding their own business. They had nothing to do with what's happening here in Bethlehem. These were just shepherds who are minding their own business, shepherding their sheep, shepherding their sheep, yes, shepherding their sheep, just doing life. And these angels would appear to them, even though they had nothing to do with it, to proclaim and herald that good news. Now, follow me for a second. When the angels do this, it's not like, hey guys, what's up? I have some information for you guys. So this really cool thing is happening in Bethlehem, and it's great news for you. I just thought you should know. Okay. And just move on. It wasn't that. It was an invitation. It was the proclamation of the good news that, that led to this response of, I must go and see for myself. I need to pick up where I am, leave everything behind, and go and see this for myself. It wasn't just information being given to these shepherds. It was an invitation to partake with God. The angels, they were beckoning and inviting these lowly shepherds to come and witness the greatest miracle that God had ever performed in human history. Because there's always an invitation from God, right? To draw closer, 
to come see for yourself, to come and taste that he is good. And everything that God does, and especially with the incarnation of Jesus, we see God's heart that invites the curious, that becks, that draws you in, beckons the childlike, and it says, you can approach me. You can get as close as you want. We hear this all over the Bible, by the way, this, this reaching out of God towards humanity. We hear it in the voice of the father when he says, where are you, Adam? In Genesis 3, we hear it in the burning bush. We hear it in the voice of the prophets saying, how long will you waver? We hear it most clearly in the incarnation of Christ and God in the flesh, the fullness of God and the fullness of man in one body. It is as if the eternal, everlasting, and unseen God wrapped himself in flesh, made himself touchable, made himself visible. He made himself relatable, vulnerable, and even killable. It's like God is saying, you can't see me, well now you can. You can't hear me, now you can. You can't commune with me, and sit with me and share a meal with me and hear the sound of my voice, now you can. This is the beauty of the invitation given to us through the incarnation of Christ. Now, here's a note. Shepherding itself was a very lowly and humble profession. Kind of like, you know, when David, you know, was a young boy and he was sent off into the pastures, you know, while his family, they're like, oh, this is the anointed man of God and he's going to anoint the next king and forget about David. He's just out there doing his thing. We don't really think about him anyway. You know, it wasn't this like, you go do this noble job while this important thing happens in our home. No, it was, you know, it was, oh, it's for that. It's like lowly. It's for the, for the mangne, you know, like for the, 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 the youngest one in your family. Like, yeah, yeah, you go do that. Keep yourself occupied. It wasn't a noble or sought after job. It isn't like those, you know, you've, you've seen those like old school, like 90s calendars where like Jesus is like with beautiful hair, you know, and like flowing white robes. And he's like walking along these hills that look like Switzerland. And he's like surrounded by these beautiful, you know, well-mannered, well-behaved white sheep, right? It's not like that at all. <laughs> Being a shepherd, it wasn't this thing that we've romanticized so much. It was a dirty job. It required manual labor. You smelled more like animals than you did as a human. You carried a staff with you to grab these suckers when they would get out of, you know, they would go off a weird way. And you have a rod on your other hand to fight off bears and lions. It's not this like, follow me, my sheep, you know? It is like, get away from my sheep. And you have to be able to kill a lion and kill a bear with this rod. It was a dirty job. It's not a job for a delicate person. Whatever infestations these sheep were carrying, you probably had it too, chances are. You probably carried it too. It was a dirty job. It wasn't this like, Wow, it looks so serene and I want to be a shepherd one day. It wasn't that kind of job. It wasn't what you would aspire to be. It was a very lowly and a very humble profession. But here's the amazing thing. These angels, out of everyone they could have visited, they approached these lowly shepherds to get front row seats to be the first ones to see God in the flesh. 
Something that we often get mixed up in our minds because we see a lot of Christmas depictions is like, oh, the shepherds were there, the animals were there, the magi were there, everybody's convened around the, you know, the, the manger. It actually didn't happen that way. Chronologically speaking, only the shepherds were there. Uh, the magi came much later. These were the wise men. So these lowly shepherd, probably low class, probably very poor, probably, you know, you know kind of like, the ostracizing community or whatnot, these were the first invited guests to witness the uncreated Yahweh as a baby. They were given a tailor-made, custom-built, personally delivered invitation from nothing else than angels themselves to witness this great miracle. Now, if you've ever doubted whether you can approach God, with your past, with your sins, with your shortcomings, with your failures, you can put those doubts to rest. If these dirty, uh, likely uneducated, random, lowly shepherds were invited to approach Jesus Christ, then you can approach him too. He is not too proud to turn away the lowly. He's not so untouchable that he'll turn away the impure. He is not so self-important that he'll turn away the insignificant. You can draw near. There's a lovely quote, quote from Eugene Peterson, and it says, The ways Jesus goes about loving and saving the world are personal. Nothing disembodied, nothing abstract, nothing impersonal. Incarnate, flesh and blood, relational particular and local. The ways employed in our North American culture are conspicuously impersonal programs, organizations, techniques, general guidelines, informational and detached from place. In matters of ways and means, the vocabulary of numbers is preferred over names, ideologies crowd out ideas, and the gray fog of abstraction absorbs the sharp particularities of the recognizable face and the familiar street. He is a God who enters time and space that we could approach him, that we could draw near, that we could see for ourselves the kind of God that he is. I love that he welcomes that kind of curiosity. I love that he's not afraid of being approached and inspected and prodded in questions. He loves the Thomases of the world that say, let me see you, let me touch you, let me put my finger on your side and see the wounds on your hands. He loves the shepherd boys that say to themselves, let me go and see for myself. God loves that. It's an invitation for us to see for ourselves. It is not just an idea for us to conjecture about. He is a God with flesh and blood that beckons us to draw near and see for ourselves. Now lastly, if the incarnation of Christ, if it is an invitation to hear the good news afresh, and if it is an invitation for us to draw and come near and see for ourselves, it is lastly an invitation to praise God anew. 
The angels brought the good news to the shepherds, and the shepherds went to see for themselves, to touch this baby for themselves, to witness for themselves. And then out of the overflow of their hearts, they praised God. Now here's the thing. The book of Luke in particular, out of all four gospels, is a very particular book. It is meant to be a compilation of information and evidence to the veracity of Jesus' life and his ministry. It was penned by a doctor who accompanied the Apostle Paul in his ministry, and he writes this gospel account with the trained eye of a surgeon. He doesn't give over to sensationalism. He doesn't give over to exaggeration. He is methodical, evidence-driven, and journalistic almost, as, as could be. And there's something quite beautiful in this narrative as Luke jots down all these things that happened. And I talked to this person. There are these many eyewitnesses. And this is what I heard them say. And all these people were there to see this and evidence this. And there would be occasionally bursts of songs, bursts of praise. It's like Luke was jotting down all the things that he's heard about, that he's seen, that he's seen people witness about and testify to. And it's almost like he can't help it, but he has to worship. It's not just like, oh, this is great information. I'm going to catalog this. I'm going to make an inventory of this. I'm going to jot all this down with accuracy. And here you go. It is evidence and truth and fact that leads us to worship. It must lead us to worship. Sometimes in our minds, we dichotomize this thing. We say, okay, here's fact and logic. And this is evidence and rationalism. Here's all of that. And then here's emotion and feeling and response and, and, you know, whatever is there, worship. But this is a very false dichotomy because everything on this camp should lead us to everything on this camp. It can't just be great knowledge and, wow, I've memorized so many things and facts about Jesus. This is, this truth must lead me to respond in worship. They both have to feed into one another. It's not like, okay, this is the Luke guy. This is the, you know, the surgeon guy. This is the doctor guy. And so he's just going to stay in this camp. This is the doctor guy who sees all this, who jots all this down, who reports all this, and he is led to worship God afresh. I love, I love that the birth of Jesus is surrounded in praise. It's like a surround sound. You know, surround sound system, right? Surround sound soundtrack of men and women and angels all praising God. In Luke 1, in the chapter that we didn't read, preceding the one that we did read, Elizabeth is praising God. We see, we hear Mary's song being sung. We hear Zechariah's song being sung. In Luke chapter 2, we hear the angel songs. We hear shepherds praising God. We hear Simeon's song. And this is just within the first two chapters of Luke. It is all enveloped in worship. It is surrounded in worship. In Luke 1, Mary sings, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. 
His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This isn't a person who's like, sitting down at their desk thinking, what would be a great song to write for God? This is someone who's experiencing God in real time and bursting out of her comes out the song of worship to God. Isn't this beautiful that the first coming of Jesus is ushered in with the sounds of worship? In fact, the whole Bible is bursting at the seams with praise. The whole Bible, worship unto God, glory unto God, exalting his name, ascribing glory to the Lord. Over and, Sometimes we think that, oh, that's only for Psalms, right? Psalms is the song book. The rest is just narrative or precepts or whatnot. The whole of the Bible is filled with praise. The whole of the Bible is filled with worship. And as we get acquainted with the fullness of this word, we will also be led into that same worship. Now, you know, for those of you who were at the retreat last week, you know how at the last session I kind of called out all the introverts? It was not very kind. But I felt like there was something on that, right? I was like, hey... If being an introvert is what you're using, you're using the introvert card to say, well, I can't talk to this person, I got the introvert card. Like, oh, God's asked me to do this, but I can't do this, introvert card. Oh, God wants me to share this with somebody, but I can't because, introvert card. Like, that's kind of like what I was talking about. So I touched on how we're called to open up our mouths Regardless of personality, regardless of our upbringing, regardless of our denomination and our natural inclination, when it comes to worship, it's very much the same. Because when it comes to worship, we're all called to praise God passionately, not because of who we are, but because of who He is, what He is worth. Let me tell you, if somebody who is very important, you know, maybe a political leader, you know, would walk into this room, you know, very naturally we would show reverence or honor in some kind of, we wouldn't say like, look, I would, I would totally honor you, but I'm just not that kind of person. And like, I would totally honor you here. I would totally, you know, welcome you here. But I, that's just not my upbringing. I'm sorry. You know, it has less to do with you, the, the, the worshiper, you, the welcomer, has less to do with you and more about the person who is in your midst. We are called to worship God passionately because He is worthy of our passionate worship. Let me tell you, sometimes we think, oh, passionate worship is just for the young, bright-eyed people, like people who have exuding energy and having, you know, don't have a care in the world and they haven't gone through trauma and they haven't gone through betrayal and hurt. It's just for those people. Let them worship God passionately. I'm kind of beyond that stage, right? But let me tell you, if an, a man who's old like Abraham, if he can praise God, If a military type guy like David, if he can praise God in such a way that people will say like, well, you got to calm down. 
Like, put your clothes back on, you know? Like, you're very undignified right now. I don't think this is very kingly behavior. If a military-type guy like David can worship God, if a type A personality type like Paul can worship so passionately that prison chains break off his hands and his feet, if an outcast and a shamed person like the Samaritan woman can worship, if a betrayed person, abandoned person like Job, a broken person like Job can worship, if a busy go-getter like Peter can worship, and if even Jesus on the cross, naked, broken, abandoned, if he can worship, then you can too. There is no excuse and no justification, nothing that will justify us and give us a loophole out of our commandment to worship the Lord. And it's simply because he is worthy. It isn't because you ought to. It isn't because it makes you a better person and this is what good Christians do. It's because our God is wonderful. It's because his power is endless, his humility is unimaginable. It's because he fills the universe and yet he was filling this one little manger at one point in history. It's because his justice is perfect and his mercy is profound. That's why we worship God during Christmas time. Because of the God that he is. This is our God and he is worthy of our praise. This is the God that we worship. So we fix our eyes on who he is we simply respond to that truth. A God who so loved the world, didn't tolerate the world, he didn't pity the world, he so loved the world, he so loved you and I, he so fought for you and I, that he gave his one and only son, that those who are dead would now have life. Those who had no hope in a future will now have a hope in a future. Those of us who are beyond repair, we're far gone so that we could have a hope in the future, so we could be redeemed and rescued out of that. That is why God gave his one and only son that those of us who are broken, those of us who are imperfect, those of us who have no way of saving ourselves, if we only call upon this name, we will not perish and we will have eternal life. That is the God that we worship. So I'm going to ask the praise seemed to come up at this time. I'm going to ask us, you know, from our seats, just close your eyes just for a moment. Fix your eyes on the God who displayed infinite love and abounding compassion. As he entered into our world, he took on the flesh of a vulnerable baby in a poor family without the welcoming reception of earthly royalty, but with the angelic celebration of the heavens and the humble worship of poor shepherd boys. Fix your eyes on that God. Let him fill your heart. Let a vision of who he is lead you to worship. A God who gave himself to a dying world. The reason why we can give is because we worship a giving God. The reason why we can forgive is because we worship a forgiving God. 
the reason why we can show compassion and we can ask for wisdom is because we worship a God who showed us compassion and gives us endless wisdom. The reason why we can find the strength to be humble, the reason why we can have hope when there's no hope around is because we worship a God who was humble, a God who was hope in the midst of hopelessness, who was light in the midst of darkness. We worship a Savior that has been born to us, the Messiah, the Lord. This is the good news for us today. And this is our great joy. Father, I ask that you would give us a renewed heart and renewed vision for who you are. We often get so tied up in things that demand our attention and all the things that ought to get done and all the to-do lists, all the things that cause us anxiety and worries, all the things that we need to factor in and filter out. We often get so absorbed and consumed by these things that we forget to look up and be reminded that you're a God who is beautiful like no other, a God who's worthy of our worship, a God who's worthy of our lives, the God who demands worship from every living creature, the God before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord. There is no other like our God. There is no name like Jesus Christ. There is no other power. There's no other salvation. There is no other truth, no other life, and no other way outside of Jesus Christ. May we fill our hearts with this truth that you are sufficient for us, that you are enough for us, that you are the greatest gift to us, that you are our hope in the midst of hopelessness. You are our strength in our midst of our weakness. Jesus, we worship you for who you are. May you fill our hearts with worship. May you fill our mind and our vision with who you are. May this be a church that worships you courageously and worships you passionately, not because of who we are, not because of how you've made us, and not because of whatever it may be, but because you are a God who is to be exalted. You are a God who is worthy of our worship. May this Christmas season be one where we meditate upon you, oh God, with so many things that we could focus on. May you be the one thing. May you be the primary thing. May you be front and center and may everything be a far second. Would you restore unto us that joy of our salvation, that childlike wonder and awe at the beauty of who you are. Restore unto us that gratitude for the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. Give us afresh a heart that worships you with sincerity in spirit and in truth. We love you, God. Would you be enthroned in our praises? Would you be glorified in our lives? And may this season be a season where we draw close to you, to hear the good news once again, to see and touch for ourselves 
once again and from there to worship you with everything that we are once again. We love you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your mighty name.